0: In today's episode of Script and Style, David and I are going to be talking about small JavaScript, JavaScript on small websites. Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Welcome to Script and Style. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS, and my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How you going today, David?
1: I'm good, man. Home sweet home. Yeah, you're back from Berlin and the Mozilla meetup. I am. How'd it, it go? Was, it was a pretty cool week, actually. I'd always wanted to go to Germany, um, and so I was able to see some really nice stuff. Um, I was like the Reichstag building. I was able to see that the victory tower. I saw a whole bunch of good stuff um, on the last day. I saw a whole bunch of bad stuff, um, but you know, we know going into visiting a concentration camp that that's what you're going to see. Right. Oh. Um, so that was a tough day, but one of those days that, you know, you should, I, I'm glad I went through um, because it's, A good reminder to be good to people and and how quickly things can go wrong when you don't. Um, There were a lot of funny things I didn't know about Berlin. The first day I was totally shook because I went to Berlin's mall, which funny enough is called Bikini Berlin. (laughs) Where the hell did they get that name? Anyways, I went to the restroom and I didn't know this, but it's customary to tip when you use a public restroom in Germany. That mm-hmm. I didn't know. Like it's one thing if you go to one of those, like uh, like bathrooms in the middle of the street, you know, you have to put coin in and like you go to the restroom, that's one thing. But at a mall, I wasn't expecting it. And the, the woman who was there, who I guess does the bathroom cleaning and stuff, she was not happy with me at all. <laughs> and I tried talking to her, I'm like, You know, using all of the eight German words I know to try and figure out what was going on, she was not happy with me. So I felt like an outlaw the first day in Berlin. You were breaking the law. Well, it's not a law per se. It's just customary. Um, So anyways, I made sure I had 50 cents on me everywhere I went in case case there was some sort of issue. But no, it it was a really good trip. Um, I came back incredibly tired because I just never made the switch, but I can now say that I've been to Germany. It was nice. The people are interesting. The food's interesting, um, but there's no place like home. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, welcome back, sir. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. So let's move on to today's topic. Today, we're going to talk about small JavaScript, so some patterns and ideas for and tips for how to build JavaScript for small sites that don't need a lot of JavaScript, static sites, your blog, your your landing pages, your uh, marketing sites, your whatever you happen to be building that is, uh, you know, just a, a couple dozen pages or so. Um, well, you've been off gallivanting around the world. I've spent the last two weeks uh, rebuilding uh, trackjs.com. We just relaunched that uh, over the weekend. And as part of that, I've rebuilt all of the JavaScripts uh, that powers it. And so I thought this might be a good opportunity while everything's fresh to kind of go through some ideas on, on how we approach this, how I think of it. And you can argue with me and tell me about all the ways that I'm probably wrong.
1: I'm Listen, I'm all for small JavaScript. Like the way that people build or have been building websites, I'd say over maybe the past decade, is sort of like the way that people treated Firefox when add-ons started coming out. So you have this beautiful new Firefox install. You're like, ooh, I need this extension for blocking ads. That's great. Oh, I need this extension for playing my podcasts. Okay. Oh, I need this extension for this. And suddenly your Firefox is a mess, it's super slow and people are pointing the finger at Firefox and they're like, no, 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 You (laughs) created this problem for yourself. And I think that websites uh, have done this over the years as well, where it's just sort of a foregone conclusion that, oh, just add jQuery, get this plugin, add jQuery UI so all the elements look the same and this and that. And suddenly right from the start, you have this massive, massive site that probably contains hundreds of kilobytes of JavaScript that you don't need. So I'm excited to talk about this.
0: Yeah. So my kind of philosophy in how to do this is that, uh, in general, you shouldn't. You should avoid writing JavaScript. You should, um, like, when you're building a site, the rationale for when it's time to add JavaScript isn't for drawing content on the page or that sort of thing. That's what that's what the web is built for. That's what like server side rendering and HTML is built for. The role of JavaScript for small sites is just to make the site sparkle, just to make it feel interactive, just to give it that little bit of extra thing that makes it just feel like a pleasure to work on. Right. Um, And so I think one of the first steps of that in 2020, and I mean, people have been saying this for a long time, but I think it's, it's super true in 2020, is that you do not need a framework for small websites. You do not need React. You do not need Vue, you do not need Mootools, you do not need jQuery. Like, for the kinds of things that a small site should be able to do, you don't need any of these big sledgehammers. Like, it's gonna be more trouble than it's worth to carry that dependency forward and to serve that dependency to all of your users. Because modern browsers, so you know, Firefox, uh, Chrome, Safari, New Android, uh, Edge, like, they support all of the, the core things that you need now. Like, as long as you don't have to support IE11, which, I mean, a lot of people don't, because um, it's, like, technically not, you know, not a supported browser anymore kind of thing, you don't you don't need any of this stuff. Like, you can just use the core functions of the language, like query selector all and array.foreach each and uh, class list and element matches and all of these other uh, things that are
1: core in the language to do all the stuff that we used to need frameworks for. Totally. And now we can depend on stuff like fetch. Um, Whereas, you know, Ajax in the past wasn't, wasn't super uh, standard when the, but that also speaks to how old some of these frameworks are and how the browsers have moved well past it. We do have to remember that like jQuery and Mootools came out when IE6 was still the thing, right? So it's been a long time coming and it's really cool that we can now depend on you know just the browser itself. But taking a step back for a minute, um, you said that you had relaunched the TrackJS website. Um, can you give us a little bit of this, the backstory of why you did the redesign and what your goals were in as far as keeping your JavaScript small. Were there certain things that you saw, whether it was like um, JavaScript you didn't need, images that you could compress? Like what were your goals in improving the TrackJS site other than just the way it looked? Sure. The, the, I have to say that the look of it, uh and the behavior of it were the
0: core the core things. We were updating our branding for the new year. We were trying to like kind of portray a little bit of a simpler look. Uh, but I also wanted to portray a faster look. And so uh my my personal goals was I wanted
1: sorry the dog the dog is not happy. Yeah my,
0: my dog is actually going off too right now I've been muting on and off. <laughs> it must be mail time Uh, anyway, so the, my personal goal for the site was I wanted, uh, I wanted it to load in, uh, to be less than a meg, like hitting the homepage needed to be less than a meg, uh, which is something that not many sites do anymore, right? Like sometimes you land on a site and it is 12 megs of content that get dropped on it, or it's, uh, it's three megs that load slowly over time. Like it's just, uh, lightweight fast pages are not super common anymore and I take pride in in how fast uh, our site is Uh, and so that was kind of a personal target of mine and so like what can I do to make the site as fast as possible to load but uh, running an error monitoring service I also know how often the web fails uh, especially when you go off to like request secondary resources and so I wanted to depend on JavaScript as little as possible. Because if somebody has a failure and my scripts file doesn't come down, I don't want the site to be broken. Like I want the site to maybe not do everything it, I wish it would do, but to uh, still be fully functional. And the fact that that failure happened, be
1: completely transparent to the visitor on the site. I feel like it takes... This is, this is how grown up we are now, Todd. We both love JavaScript a ton, but we've come around full circle to trying to write as little of it as possible. Right, but I think that's, I think that's good and it's healthy. We've
0: seen the limitations of JavaScript and how unpredictable its asynchronous nature can be uh, when you throw it out onto the web of the real world. And so you want to take as few of those risks as possible. And so collectively, we're kind of hovering around this term known as progressive enhancement, which is, which is that the idea that your website should be fully functional kind of at its core and that you use JavaScript to enhance it from there. That if, if you turned off JavaScript, the page should work and do something of value. And then every script you layer onto it, Adds value, but if any one of them break for some reason, it doesn't destroy the entire page
1: right so were there any areas of the new redesign that that you needed to implement that type of progressive enhancement, like form submissions or anything
0: yeah there's a there's a bunch of different places that that i mean the whole site kind of uses this idea, but probably one of the the things that I'm most proud of is uh in the header uh so the header is you know the primary navigation of the site so how are people going to be able to get around and for the most part it's just a series of links but there's a couple of spots where i want to use like a menu right like underneath this particular header item i have like a dozen or so links that i need to i want to be able to show dynamically on the page or if the user's browsing on a mobile device and we can't show the whole header and we just do like the hamburger icon, how do we control the hamburger coming down and going back up? And a lot of people solve that with JavaScript where you like add click events or add hover events, but you don't have to use JavaScript for that. There is an amazing like little CSS trick that you could use, you can leverage turn uh, to do this all over with hidden inputs. So there's actually like a, um, uh, a hidden checkbox behind it that we're feeding over. So when you click on a menu, you're actually clicking on a label for a checkbox. So you're checking a box, and then you can apply CSS rules that are different if a label is checked or not checked. So when you check the checkbox, it the CSS draws a menu. When you uncheck the checkbox, the menu goes away. And so you can do the full controls of like a multi-level header and a mobile menu without any JavaScript at all, which is great because if your JavaScript fails, you don't want your main navigation menu to be broken. It's kind of like one of those core things of the site that really just need to work. Now the progressive enhancement approach comes in because there's one little thing that this hidden input trick can't do, which is hover. So there's no real good way to like say that, I want to uh, expand this menu um, when this, I want to expand a sibling element when another element is being hovered over uh, because that just doesn't transfer through from a label to an input to a child element. And so in order for that to work really well, I needed to write a little bit of JavaScript to just say, hey, when this element is hovered, go ahead and check the input underneath of it to power the CSS animation. And when the hover stops, pull back out.
1: I feel like I'm, I'm going to demand a blog post about this. Oh, this you'll, is... you,
0: you'll get a blog post oh, about this. I, 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 like, I like this a lot. I think this is a really fun trick.
1: Excellent. And you know, I've
0: seen, there's lots of examples of this. Like I'm pretty sure I saw a couple of articles on CSS tricks about it. I saw a Stack Overflow answer about it. Like this is a, a known pattern that you can find how to do it. You just need to build it once yourself and kind of internalize it that you have uh, an input hidden, use a label as a button, and that label, you know, points at that input. You use a proper, like, for attribute to point at it. And then you're just writing CSS that toggles based on whether an input is checked or not. And you can do all kinds of really fun things with that pattern.
1: Awesome. In your last design, did you have a big framework? Was this, was this your liberation from, from frameworks?
0: It, we still had jQuery on the site uh, last time. And it was just for a handful of little things that had kind of crept in over the lifetime of the site uh, when we started the site that we didn't have jQuery, but like there's just a few things that we were kind of time pressured on and so we brought in uh, jQuery three to like pull it off um, and I didn't like that so so we're not doing any jQuery this time at all. We're not doing any frameworks at all. It's just straight, plain old JavaScripts.
1: excellent, so let's say for example. There is some sort of error um, where the JavaScript doesn't load. Um, what are we seeing on the site? What's affected? So, there's a couple of different things that pull in,
0: right? Depending on, on what we're doing. The core script, so we have one you know, main script that does just about all of our customizations, um, and that can fail to load. So we run, obviously, we run Track.js monitoring on our site, and about once a day, we'll see a failure of an asset to load from somebody visiting the site, and it can be it can be anything. Usually, it's an image that just doesn't come down for some reason. Uh, sometimes it's it's uh, a JavaScript file. Sometimes it's uh, one of our uh, like a third like um uh, like something related to our video player that doesn't come down. Uh, but something will fail uh, once, twice a day. And so what I want to make sure is that for the people who that happened to due to a network blip or a browser problem or a plugin or I don't know, something happened where this the site came down in a partially functional state. And I want to make sure that the site works great even for them and they don't know it. And so uh, this is where that progressive enhancement approach comes in. And so because of how we built that main menu, if that script fails to load, the menu still works. The hover behavior just doesn't work anymore. But the core behavior, you click on a a button and it works. Uh, Another example is is the video. So like right, you know, just a little bit down the page, we have like this explainer video, like it's a a Vimeo video embed. Um, uh, So it's an iframe we're placing in the page. But in order to place that on the page, we use a little bit of JavaScript. And obviously there's JavaScript inside of their embed to make sure everything works. Uh, And so we need to make sure that JavaScript has loaded properly before we actually show that video. And so we use a little trick uh, that I think Modernizer actually created. I'm not sure the first group to use this, where uh, the document itself has a class called no JS on it, no JS on it by default. Right. And the first thing that my script does is remove that. Right. And so we have a handful of rules uh, the, uh, of CSS rules that apply to the no JS class and the yes JS class. So we can opt out or opt in different things. And so the whole video section only even loads if JavaScript is present. And if JavaScript has failed for whatever reason, well, the, you just don't see the video. You don't know that it failed. It's just that section of the UI i know requires javascript to work and so it's just gone if 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 it fails for some reason and so the, the user doesn't know the user doesn't see a broken piece of content uh it doesn't reflect badly on me that i had this thing that didn't work they just you know see a slightly less functional site than 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 they would have otherwise
1: that's really cool and that's something that i've used in the past as well um I do think Modernizer was one of the first sites to actually use it. Um, yeah, I think I saw it for the first time with the uh, the old
0: HTML5 boilerplate project, right? Uh, which used Modernizer pretty heavily.
1: Yep. So let me ask this: You've talked about writing as little JavaScript as possible, um, which I totally agree with. One of the things that stops me from redesigning my site sometimes is the fact that I feel like I need to create a build step for it. Um, Why? Because you go to these websites that analyze your site and they say, oh, if you minify, you'd be this much faster. Um, If you do this, you'd be this much faster. And I think that part of it is just that I am pulling in dependencies that I think I need. For example, um, I use Prism to syntax highlight all of the code samples. So I feel like that's something that I need, but that's something that I need to, need to, in my build step, go to GitHub, pull it down, pull in the plugins I need, just the plugins I need, because I wanna keep it small, um, minify it, bundle it. There's so many things that I feel like I don't wanna do manually that I end up getting stuck on this build step. Um, And I end up writing way more JavaScript for my build step than I do really for the site itself. So when you did this redesign, did you use a build a build step if so how complicated was it or if you didn't like how difficult was it to not use one so i didn't approach
0: uh like the build out with the idea that i that i don't need one necessarily but you need to wait until you feel like you need it like i think going into it and starting with trying to figure out like webpack or whatever is a mistake i would say like 75% 75% of projects don't need Webpack. Like, you, you get there later. You get there when it, when it needs to get big. You get there, if you're going to go in and start from a framework, you're kind of forced down that approach. But if you're not building with a framework because you don't need a lot of JavaScript, just a little bit of JavaScript, you don't need all of that. So we ended up n- not needing it. Our core script is a little less than 500 lines of code, um, but it's heavily commented. It's all in one file. We don't even bother minifying it because after you put it on the server and you run through GZIP, GZIP is real good at like doing the same kind of things that minification would do. Um, And so it ends up being 4K. 4K for all of the JavaScript on the site. And that's just not, like it's just not worth it. Like if we added a bunch of complexity to build and minify it, we might get a little bit of that back but it's so trivial compared to the size of, like, one image. Like, you can minify images a lot, but you're not going to, like (laughs) – like, the difference between, you know, getting an image down to, like, 30K versus taking your JavaScript and adding a bunch of complexity to take it from 4K to 2K just isn't – it's just not worth it. It's not worth the effort. So, you just just throw it out there and let it serve. Now, if it hit 20K, 30K, 50K – Absolutely. It's time to look at like some build tools. But you have to write a lot of JavaScript to get to 50k. You have to you'd have to write a lot of like uh little helper functions. Now you're getting into you're not really writing small JavaScript anymore. You're writing your small JavaScript has evolved into a, a big JavaScript project. Now you did ask about plugins, because like or like um like other modules, because we do use some of those. Um right. For example, we use a, a, a module called Pritify for the code samples on our site. And when I need to do that, I actually just, that's just a separate thing. I have a vendor folder <laughs> and the, the, there's a vendor, the JS is sitting in that vendor folder. And uh, we really only use that on blog posts. So on our blog post template, so not our main homepage, but on a template for a blog post, there's just a script tag that loads Pritify. And then after it's done, it checks to see if it exists and it attempts to run Pritify. Pritify by itself is also a progressive enhancement kind of thing. If it fails to load, the code sample still renders in a code like a, a pre-tag. So right. it's in monospace format and still looks like code. It's just not different colors. So really the only thing you lose if that secondary script fails to load is you, we lost the colors. Right. Now, what's important is that we we don't have any cross-link. Like our main script never actually interacts with Prettify. Never expects Prettify to exist because they come down as separate scripts. Right. And so you'd need to do all kinds of safety checking. So the Prettify d- handles its responsibility. My main script handles my custom responsibilities, and they don't they don't interact. This is like the starting of where the you know modular JavaScript um, Webpack kind of people will start arguing of like, all right, you're starting to get more complex. I'm like, and I am, it's just not yet. What's, what has always been uh, an interesting kind of thought experiment for me is, is the rule of three, is that you shouldn't actually think about abstractions and optimizations until you've done something three times. So like you do, you do a responsible like I load a script once, great, I've loaded it. I don't need to think about it, how to optimize that further. Right now I have two scripts and that's when, you know, some developers will be like, Oh, we got to like abstract this and build like a loader. No, you copy and you paste done, move on. Then you do it that third time. Now's when you, when you can consider optimizing. It does it make sense. Is it time? Is there really a common thing to do between these three things that we need to consolidate them together? And the answer might still be no. But the answer, in my belief,
1: is never yes until you've done it
0: at least three times.
1: Or until everything else is done, could you say? Or just never? No, it would just be never.
0: Like, you just never... Like, you've done it twice. If you never have to do it again, and, like, the work is done, and it it needs to happen two times in the code base, well,
1: it happens two times in the code base. This is where where I think I would fail because part of what I try and do when I do a design, by the way, while you're talking, I pulled down my main JavaScript file, not the MooTools file, but just my main one, 18 K minified. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but a lot of it is MooTools plugins and such, which I know I can get away from in my next redesign. Um, I think one thing, that myself and other developers get hung up on is you go to Google's um, web page tester, or you go to any other tester, right? And you let it grade you yeah. and you get hung up on these grades where you feel <laughs> like, you know, what you've said is very practical. But when Google tells you the, you know, and if you care anything about SEO or bringing in people from search, you need to care about this. I think people get hung up on these grades. Yeah. Um, But at the same time, common sense also tells you that the biggest hangups on websites usually aren't the JavaScript. It's the images and such that haven't been optimized. And so, like, how how can I not be a slave to these grades? How can I look at these and go, this is not the worst thing in the world if I have a B plus um, on a certain thing?
0: Man, I, I, I don't know, I suffer that same thing. So, a grade that I'll commonly get on my sites. Uh, the new it doesn't have it yet, uh, but I'm kind of surprised it didn't tell me this morning, is that, um, is that I just kind of throw all my CSS together. I have I, Just like my JavaScript, I have one CSS file that has all the styles of the whole site and and that's not necessarily the most optimal way to do it right it's it's i'm shoving a whole bunch of css down the wire that i don't know the user will need and so frequently google will tell me hey i should optimize my css file to send you know only the css i need to show my home page on my home page and then when they visit other pages i should send ancillary css and i i understand like the core mechanic of that
1: So do I, but I, I want to call bullshit on it, though, because one of the things that makes web performance so difficult is that there are things that very much conflict with each other. So, for example, one thing that you're always told is you want to have as few CSS, I'm sorry, as few HTTP requests as possible you know, whether it's images, JavaScript, yeah. et cetera, which is why we built loaders. And, yeah. and that's and, less
0: true now that we have HTTP two though.
1: Sure. Okay. That's fine. But still, I still feel like you need to minimize the number of requests. Right. Yeah. So it's like, well, that's why I bundle all of my CSS into one file. Um, you know, it combines two requests. It's, you know, maybe 2k or 3k bigger than it would be if they were separated why are you judging me on this yeah and and so that's where i think that web performance can be really tricky to learn and stuff like these tests are really tricky to trust because these things conflict furthermore you go to any website like espn or cnn you go to any big site and you look at their source code and it just looks like a massive yolo right where they're including a, a whole bunch of CSS, you know, like if you go to ESPN and you look at their grade, their grade would be probably trash. Right. And that's not specific to ESPN, just like any big site. And so part of me gets deflated when I, let's say I'm successful at all of these things and I get a good grade, but a site like that doesn't, and they don't seem to care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. My, I can't, my- I can't get over it.
0: Yeah, I think there's a bunch of other considerations that we need to take. So like right now my CSS file in total for the whole site is 10k after after gzipping. So it's not that big. Now I could probably get it down to like 2 or 3k if I only ship down what I need for for the main site or for the for the home page. And so Google is is right in the way that like yeah, I could save 7k of CSS. But I think there's like a perception thing. Is that so? When somebody's clicking into my site from somebody else, there there's some that first hit. I think there's some expectation that is is understandable that that first hit is a little bit slower. Not saying that the the web page is slow, but like it routes through Google and through like you know whatever Google's tracking or DuckDuckGo's tracking or whatever from clicking on a site. And so not all of it is blamed to you. Sometimes they'll blame the user will say, oh, well, you know, sometimes clicking on links is a little bit slower. And so I want to ship all of it so that when they're navigating my page, like from, from page to page, everything is super fast because I've already cached everything. Now that doesn't that doesn't hold true for all numbers, right? Like if I had, you know, 50K or 100K of CSS, okay, yeah, sure. It's time to start thinking about modularizing that. But just like job, on what I was saying with JavaScript, at... At the levels of, of of content that we're talking about for small sites, the the optimization to try and figure out what CSS I need on what pages and like make sure that that's loaded just feels like an unnecessary optimization.
1: I'd agree. So we've been talking about small sites, right? and you consider TrackJS a small site, I guess I'd consider my blog a small site, but a lot of people work on mediums, medium to large size sites, right? So what can we pull out of your redesign of a small site that we can also apply to a large site? You know what I'm saying? Like, For example, you, you have to know your content right so like yeah. if, if you have stuff that requires jquery like you just i guess you just have to do it
0: yeah um, if you're gonna do and you know you're gonna do a bunch of like dynamic client-side rendering and you just know that going in you you, you might you know start with you know a jquery or not a jquery a uh a react or a view or whatever because you know you're going to need to do some of that right if it's, I think just, if it's just a couple elements here or there, you can just do that with vanilla JavaScript. But if you're going to do it a lot, if it's going to be like a repeatable pattern throughout your UI, uh, first challenge yourself and make sure you really need to do that because it doesn't matter what framework, it's not as fast as the browser doing it itself. Um, but just make sure you really need that pattern and that that pattern adds something
1: to the site and to the user experience. Cool. Cool. I agree with that as well. I think, I think like one of the, one of the things that we need to remember, no matter what size site we're creating is that we can trust the browsers. Now we can trust the browsers to have JavaScript and (laughs) HTML and CSS features that we, that we actually need. And that, you know, we shouldn't be jumping into a, into a framework immediately. So with the JavaScript that you wrote, And especially moving forward and maintaining it and making sure that you don't break all of the progressive enhancements um, that you've implemented. How, how did you end up and how do you continue to avoid writing spaghetti code? Like what, what are some of the risks, I guess, in what you've written um, or tricks, I guess I should say to keep things easy moving forward. Yeah. So like, just writing
0: low level JavaScript, you end up writing a lot of goo, like low, just like there's just more lines of code that end up getting written to accomplish tasks. Like a lot of the things that the libraries and frameworks do for you is give you like these obfuscations um, behind like common tasks, like creating elements and placing elements and finding things and looping over things. Uh, And so there's just a few more lines of code involved. And so uh, spaghetti code, like getting code that's like all wound together and hard to understand uh, is something is kind of a, a very natural evolution for a lot of people's code. But we can do some things to resist it uh, and, and try and keep things uh, separate as long as possible. Uh, you can actually check a look, take a look at all of the things that I did by actually just looking at our script file. Uh, so if you want to go out to trackjs.com and just look at my main JS script, uh, you can see it, exactly, like comments and all, it's not minified. You can just read it and see like, oh, this is what Todd did. Uh, and, you know, judge me for it if you'd like. But this is how people learn JavaScript before GitHub. You know, you read you read code from websites you liked and said, oh, that's, that's kind of neat. How did they do that? And you just looked at it. Right. Um, so one of the things that, that I like to do is I like to create a utility object. So I usually just call it util, and it's just like this this placeholder object where I take functions that do something interesting, that have one of those niceties that maybe I would have liked from a framework and I tend to need it a bunch and I'll create it myself. And I won't necessarily do it in the most compatible, like I won't cop lift code from jQuery or Lodash or anything like that, but I'll I'll do something similar for what I specifically need. So for example, one of the things that I often need is I need to get the contents of the query string. From the URL, I want to basically get all the stuff that's in the query string, and I want to create a JavaScript object that looks like that query string, where I have all the keys and all the values, and everything has been decoded appropriately, so that I could do stuff with it. I could see what happened. I could see, you know, what's in there. And so I have a utility function called, you know, get search that does that. It doesn't have any expectations about what's in it. It it tries to stay as, you know naive about the environment as possible. It's just a fun or a a functional script to do stuff for me. And I try and keep all those kind of together. Then I have a bunch of functions that need to happen after the document is ready. So there's, you know, a lot of people will jump to like, oh, that's why you need jQuery, you need jQuery.ready or whatever, so that you have this way of knowing when the document's ready. There's a boilerplate native JavaScript way of doing that too. It's a little gross, so I recommend not doing it all the time, but like uh, having one great big block where like, here's all the things that need to happen after jQuery is ready or after the document is ready, right. uh, can like organize your code. It's like, here's the utilities at the top. Here's the stuff that runs at the bottom. Um, and then I like to kind of just do some browser compatibility checking. Cause like, even though I don't really care about you know, people who hit my site with IE9, I don't want it to blow up and generate a bunch of errors that I have to like figure out how to manage either. Right. Uh, And so I do like a quick no-op check. So I don't use the whole surface area of of the browser's API, but I do heavily use things like query selector and array for each and element class list so I can, you know, manipulate classes on an object easier. Or check if an element matches a certain selector i tend to use those a lot in my logic Kind of that's how i think mm-hmm. um and so i'll i'll basically just put a no op right at the top of the file that says hey you have to have all these things if you don't have all these things javascript's not gonna run we're just not we're just not gonna do anything i'm not gonna be uh i'm not gonna nick and dime or nickel and dime this site and figure out what is and is not gonna work. If you just aren't a modern browser, I'm not going to expect anything to work and I'm gonna no-op. So then I get into more what I think of as modular JavaScript for a small site, which is just a bunch of iffy enclosures for each responsibility. So that iffy enclosure is you know an immediately exec- or immediately invoked functional expression. It's those functions with curly braces around them that invoke themselves immediately yep and I just list off every kind of responsibility that I have in the site in its own iffy with like a name so that if it throws an error, I get like a nice stack trace that says, Hey, your single menu function blew up in this sort of way um and I just list off here's everything I want to do that helps me keep my code organized uh, I can use like uh my text editor to easily click collapse all of them and find what I want um and it like keeps things from interfering with each other. Like the fact that I don't have a single loop happening or I'm not like doing some things up, or like initializing all my variables at the top. It lets me organize the bits so that I can, you know, copy one out into another site if I wanna use it somewhere else, or I can just delete this thing wholesale. Nothing outside of, the, of one of these blocks should ever involve anything else. And if I need to send a signal from one to another, I always try and use standard browser idioms. Like I just trigger a ready event on on an element or I set a loaded attribute on an element or something like that. Something that doesn't involve weird coupling between the JavaScripts directly. It's always a, you know, maybe somebody else wants to know this, but it's not critical if they don't get it. I'm just going to like inform
1: the Dom that I'm done. This is really smart. Um, I feel like you're giving me the redesign bug because I want to do all of the things that you just did. Well, Um, you in
0: fact helped me out with some of it because one of those functions that I have in there is a lazy loader that I lifted a code from one of your blog posts (laughs) to make that lazy loader using the intersection observer. Yes. Like one of the heaviest parts of my page was like this wall of screenshots that sits over the footer. And like, it's just, a lot of, it's just a lot of images that I don't want to load unless the user actually gets there. And so that was, I don't lazy load all of my images because lazy loading implies JavaScript has to work. Right. So, so my core images are just, they're just in the page. They just, right. they're, they're just there. But these ones I felt were ancillary. And so I'm using your intersection observer with a few tweaks here and there uh, for my specific needs and and lifting it so yeah i used your code you should you should do some let feel free to lift the <laughs> code for <from> me
1: <laughs> i just might yeah so taking everything that you've just shared and learned is actually really inspiring because like i said my site uses mootools and a bunch of mootools plugins which i probably don't need anymore um i can rely on fetch i can rely on stuff uh you know class list i can rely on um a whole bunch of element tricks i guess to get done what i want to get done while still being accessible um, while still working without javascript um and so on so i'm inspired i think one of my goals again was to redesign my site this year so you're gonna have to hold me to it Um, the, the, I'm not going to get over the build step, though. I know I'm going to get hung up on it and I'm just going to lose steam. Um, really cool. That's nice the big problem with
0: the build step is that you, you introduce it too early and then you like, it saps all your energy. Like figuring out build tools is a drain on energy. Just don't do it yet. Scripts.js start writing. Damn it. Okay. And then, and then put a bunch of returns or like put a marker at line 1000 and say, once I hit
1: line 1000, I will write a build step. So I think part of it for me at least is I want to be able to use something like SAS or less or stylus for my CSS. Yeah. That's the big, that's the bigger issue than JavaScript.
0: I guess I I actually do use SAS.
1: I I don't have a
0: JavaScript build step. Uh, I use Jekyll for my site. And so uh, with Jekyll, um, I get a, a SAS build step kind of for free as part of the platform. And so I don't have to like worry about it at all. And I don't have to configure it at all. Cause so structures.com is just a Jekyll uh, site hosted on GitHub pages. Is it really? It is. Yeah. All of my sites are, I love See, it. I can't do that though. Well, you'd have to port it.
1: Oh, sounds awful. Okay. <laughs> so so awful. <laughs> let's not get into the weeds. Um, all right. I think it's now's a good time for takeaways. Takeaways. We've sort of, yes. we've sort of seen how track you know, went from its former, its former glory to the new glory, <laughs> um, with a lot less JavaScript, a lot less assets, a lot less complexity. So having shared everything that you, you know, thought about that you coded your strategy and now that it's up and live, what is your main takeaway from this entire process?
0: It's good. This is, this is totally going to sound like promotional. It's not because it really is my main takeaway is that, uh, I spent a lot of time building and testing the site. Like I I have like HTML five validation on the site that I did like before we pushed it to make sure everything worked and all the links worked and all the elements were properly, uh, were properly set up and when we pushed it we still had errors from, from runtime there was still like there was a there was a race condition bug with loading the, the video player there was a a bug in the tabbing logic of like seeing like different different customer groups there was um uh there was an asset that was being loaded from an external site that was flaky and we decided to copy it in having that error monitoring in place. So I've been checking the TrackJS reports of this site every day since we launched and like focusing on it and like fixing things and trying to figure out what every single error coming in the door is. And some of them are unavoidable network failures. But a lot of them, almost all of them was something real, some subtle condition that I would have never imagined would never come out in a test case. But some real user on a real site experienced at one time. And so uh, it gives you that visibility to understand like what is actually happening. Um, we also kind of figured out some tricks for the Track.js platform as well. We figured out a couple of like cool little ignore patterns to basically hide errors from browser extensions that I think is really interesting when we're gonna try and fold that uh, as a helper into the main product line. So my main takeaway is you need to monitor your client side. You need to monitor that site in production to see what is going on and all of the different ways you fucked up. I agree. My Incredibly take- promotional, but like <laughs> I was remarking to my partners on Track.js like after I was monitoring it and I was like, oh, our product is so good. It is so good. <laughs>
1: Awesome. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I recently TrackJS was showing me some of the errors that were coming through from, um, from ads not loading. And so I was able to um, recode some of the, the analytics stuff so that those errors stopped showing up and things were a little bit safer. So that felt really good. And I wouldn't have known it without TrackJS. So yes. Um, Let's see, what is my main takeaway? I guess my main takeaway would be I've always wanted to, I've wanted to do this next redesign without needing a framework, but I've also been sort of scared, right? I've been trusting the browsers, I've been trusting the JavaScript APIs, but I wasn't sure if I would be able to completely redesign the site without any of that stuff. Like there was always something that I'm, I'm gonna miss this and then I'm gonna need the whole avalanche of you know, whatever framework that comes with it. Um, I think that your experience sort of puts me at peace with the fact that I will be able to do this. I'm not going to need a whole bunch of crap. Um I don't need to go through the build step. Thank you for saying that. I I needed a grown-up in the room to tell me that. Um not yet. Like not yet.
0: like like I said, don't say never, but don't start day 1 either.
1: Like That's just great. just yeah. set
0: your set a goal of like If I can get all of my script done in less than a thousand lines of code and it's less than 10 kg zipped over the wire,
1: then then I don't care. Even if it is, I think I'm gonna not go with the build step until the very end. Which also makes sense because then at the very end you know all the stuff that you need instead of trying to piece it together as you you know go along and implement stuff. So that's my main takeaway is that I will be able to do my site without a whole bunch of crap because I've seen you do it. And I think that's, that's a pretty good message for everyone. So that's my big takeaway.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think that's it for us today. Uh, I think this was a pretty fun show. I got to show off a little bit. So I was like that. <laughs> uh, uh, if you have any questions or comments, uh, feel free to hit us up on Twitter. Also, if, uh, if you have ideas for a show, something you'd like us to do or something you'd like us to talk about, please let us know. I'm at Todd H. Gardner.
1: I'm at David Walsh blog. See you next time.
0: The Script and Style show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.